And through the process in that three years of writing those three books, I got to relearn who I was, you know, because I'd sort of forgotten. I was sort of a figurehead of something. And when, and when I was sort of out very quickly, I was like, oh, what am I good at? I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if I'm good at anything. Hello and welcome to Beauty Island, the beauty podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. I am your host, beauty journalist Brittany Stewart, and each episode I sit down with a guest to ask them about the eight beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them that they take to a desert island or beauty island that I am sending them off to. Maybe it's the beauty product they first bought with their pocket money, or the perfume that instantly sparks a memory of a special place or person. Along the way, we find out more about their life, career, and the people and events that have shaped them into who they are today. Today, my guest is author and former editor of Vogue Australia, Kirsty Clements. Working her way from the front desk to the top job, Kirsty spent 13 years as the editor of Australia's premier high fashion magazine. Then, one day, out of the blue, she was fired. Her book, The Vogue Factor, which she was approached to write the very next day, tells of her incredible story from Rebel in the Shire to beauty editor in Paris to one of Sydney's most influential magazine editors. And what happened after that? As anyone who was once a budding fashion journalist, I have long admired Kirsty and thumbed through The Vogue Factor, the first of five books she has written, countless times. So it was truly an honour to have the chance to chat with her about discovering the Sydney punk scene at 16, how beauty can be war paint, community building, and even meditative in life's chaotic moments, her blurred cameo in Zoolander, and how she's feeling about returning to magazines full-time six years after leaving Vogue, this time as Features Director at Harper's Bazaar, another former home for her. Some of Kirsty's stories are so incredible they sound like the plotline of a film, such as leaving a top Parisian nightclub while on a perfume launch press trip and asking the man on the door to help order her a cab. Instead, he insisted on taking her out for a glass of champagne and she ended up in another swanky Parisian establishment in a booth with Michael Hutchins of NXS and the man on the door who ended up becoming her husband. Incredible. One note about this episode just a heads up that this interview was conducted over the phone, so the quality of the audio is not quite as good as when we're both in the same room. That is always my aim in arranging interviews, but given I'm in Melbourne, work full-time in a job unrelated to this podcast, and many of my guests are in Sydney, and also very busy people who are very kind to give up their time to do this podcast, it can be a little difficult to organise. I do use my leave to go up to Sydney every few months to do these interviews, but I recently had someone leave a review commenting on the audio of these over-the-phone episodes, so I just wanted to acknowledge that and explain a little bit about why that sometimes happens. But as always, I appreciate that feedback and will definitely be ensuring more and hopefully soon all episodes are done in person. Speaking of reviews, if you do enjoy this episode, please subscribe, rate and leave a nice review for me. But enough of me, over to my chat with the fabulous Kirsty Clements. Enjoy. All right, Kirsty, welcome to Beauty Island. Thank you so much for joining me. To start off with, do you remember your first introduction to beauty or your first beauty-related memory? Yes, I, I do very clearly. Um, is that... I grew up in the in the Shire, and so you know the, the regular suburban upbringing. And my mum was a working mum, and 
every Saturday afternoon, I think it was every Saturday afternoon, or maybe it was every two weeks, she would have a facialist come to the house and she would get a facial done in her bathroom, which was a very posh thing to do in those days. And, you know, all my friends and I would be like, oh, look, look what mum's doing. And the woman used Lancome products. And so we were all like, wow, they're French, they're from France. (laughs) And they smelled really beautiful. And of course, mum bought all the products and everything. So my biggest memory is that of my mum doing this very glamorous thing, and she really cared about her skin. And that really stuck with me. And mum had this mad ensuite and her bedroom that had like like white acrylic carpet you know it's quite it was was super 70s and she had tons and tons of makeup and she would let me play with it and I just remember being in that bathroom with my girlfriends playing with mum's makeup and I kind of developed a lifelong passion for for makeup and false eyelashes and lipstick and you know it was all very it was all very camp turbans you know the whole thing but I just like I could spend hours in there you you've previously said you're kind of obsessed with beauty it is a real genuine passion and love for you oh definitely definitely and you know as soon as I as soon as mum let me wear makeup you know, I'd save up my pocket money and every Saturday morning my girlfriends and I would go up. Well, you start at the chemist, of course, because that was where you just hovered around and looked at everything. And then, you you know, went up to Miranda Fair, I think it was, and go and look at all the makeup. And you could only afford sort of certain things, but you'd spend hours trying to work out what you could buy with your pocket money. And, and it was a time of quite a lot of makeup, really. You know, there was – everyone was wearing blue eyeshadow and sort of sticky lip gloss and – and I was, you know, trying out all the fragrances and, and nail polish. So I kind of, I had a passion for it. But also my, my mum wore a lot of makeup, but my, my auntie was a showgirl. She was an ex-showgirl. Oh, wow. So she always, Auntie Faye, and she was very glamorous. My cousin was Miss New Zealand, you know. And so it was this kind of, we all just love makeup. It was like my mother and my aunt always had perfect nails. They always had their lipstick on and brow pencil. And it, it, we were a family of you just love makeup, really. And so one of the products on your list is another product that reminds you of your mum, which is a, a, a nail polish. Can you tell me a bit about that? She wouldn't let me wear. I wasn't allowed to wear. I think I think I was allowed to wear pale pink, maybe for my first entree into nail polish when I was about 12. And then, but it, all the bright colours were popular. And so I think my first one that she let me buy was pale blue nail polish and I think I feel like Q-Tex used to have coloured nail polishes I feel like it was a Q-Tex nail polish and yeah that was my my, kind of my first colour cosmetic that I was allowed to have but it was very pale yeah (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't dark blue and that was like really really cool and in fact I might go I might do that again next time (laughs) I have (laughs) it was yeah that was my I was like wow now I'm in the world of makeup and I also think it's interesting in a in, uh, previous interview with you, I read you kind of describe beauty can also be, it can be for fun and play and experimentation, but it can also be kind of wall paint as well. I mean, for me it is. You know, I remember there was a thing going around the internet a few years ago, like, you know, take your makeup off, you know, take a photo of, post a selfie with no makeup, you know, that was supposed to be empowering. And I thought, well, is it? Because if you love makeup and you feel more put together in it, then... You know, because I, I got sent the, the whole chain <laughs> chain email to do it. And I was like, well, no, I feel more empowered when I am made up and I spend far, far, much, far more time thinking about my makeup in the morning than I do about what I'm going to put on. Because oh, um, for me, it's a ritual yeah. and, and it kind of almost a meditation. So 
I think it is empowering and it can be if you've got a big presentation or you've got to do a speech or you've got a big, no, you know, if you're into it, it's one of, it's a pleasure. It's a form of art for a lot of people. So I don't see it as, you know, patriarchal oppression or, you know, conforming to societal norms. I I, I don't. It's just something that I've loved and I've, I spend a lot of time on it because it makes me happy. Absolutely, and that, that's that's the whole point of it, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, it's a ritual, you know, and I, I have a, it's embarrassing, it's slightly embarrassing, but not. I got one of those three-tiered trolleys from Ikea, and it's just all full of makeup, and I have that in the morning, so I can just play, like I'll be like, yeah. oh, I'll use this foundation, or oh, perhaps I'll use this mascara this morning, or now I'm going to try this one because... I like to change it up every day as well. So it's one of my favourite things. I only just bought it to change my life because <laughs> it's on it's on wheels. I can take it from room to room. It's absolutely changed my life. <laughs> and speaking of conformity, as you kind of mentioned, you grew up in the Shire, which is in, in, mm. in Sydney. And mm. in, in your book, The Vogue Factor, mm. you talk about kind of you having not quite fitting the, the mould of what, I guess, no. particularly at that time, society and men thought women in the Shire should kind of be like. Was yes. escaping that as you were growing up something that you were very much focused on or planning? Yes, yes. I've realised early on, it was obviously it's a beach, you know, beachside suburb in the, the Shire, Sylvania, but it's Cronulla and what have you. And it was the Beauty Blues days. It was it was super sexist, you know, it's that, as Beauty Blues explained, you know, the girls sat on the beach and waited for the boyfriends to come in from surfing. Girls didn't surf, you know. There was this kind of beachy look that you were supposed to follow, you know, that was the supreme beauty was if you were really brown and had blonde hair, really. And I couldn't go brown. I've got really pale, you know, Celtic skin, don't have blonde hair. And, you know, I suppose I went through those regulation years of feeling bad about it until you realise you're intelligent enough to go... <laughs> Actually, I'm not the problem. You are, yeah. <laughs> um, in the in, in terms of the attitudes, and so I left the shire pretty early, and I moved into the in the city. So I moved into Kings Cross when I was like 16, and that's when I discovered the punk scene and the music scene and um, alternative, you know, culture to the beach, and you know, going to all the sort of French and Italian movies and you know, all that sort of stuff and that's when we really started to, to dress up and wear tons and tons of makeup and um, you know, eyeliner and bleached our hair and dark red lips and white white skin and that kind of you know, diamond earrings, that sort of look, you know, that kind of op shop punky kind of glam thing. Um which I found much more expressive and, you know, it was just a much more, it was a less oppressive culture. It was, it was about music and art and film and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, and costume and dressing up and being playful with clothes. And so that's, I got far more um, input in there than I had ever had in my sort of Shire upbringing. Well, I've got some fond memories of Shire because of the crazy things we wear and the flares and the halter neck tops and yeah. the, you know, the blue eyeshadow and the plucked eyebrows and all that stuff. There are some kind of great fashion things that I remember. But in the 70s, it was not a place, not a great place for a girl if you had ambition. And the second product on your list, I think, relates to that time when you first kind of moved to King's Cross and were mm. kind of immersed in the whole punk and music and club scene, which is mm-hmm. um, Thick Black Eyeliner. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, because we wore tons of that. Because that look was that white, white, white skin. And, of course, there wasn't all the wonderful makeup there is today. So we used to – you'd have to buy it. Shiseido had a foundation that was really, really pale, so we always used to buy the number one Shiseido foundation. And then the darkest red lipstick you could possibly find and then really, really black eyes. And so I used to buy these Rimmel – I think they were Rimmel – powdered eyeshadows like they were yeah powder eyeshadow disc you know and you put it on with a wet it and put it on with a brush and I basically slept in eyeliner for the next (laughs) you know 20 years I remember a flatmate saying he was like waiting for the day to catch me when I didn't have it on you know getting out of bed or whatever he never ever ever saw me without eyeliner (laughs) on so that was yeah that was definitely a signature look and you know if you're doing that sort of 50s flick or the more goth look or, you know, a 30s look even, and you smudge it. So, I mean, eyeliner is – I'm still obsessed with eyeliner. And so your first job was actually mm. – or first kind of adult job was kind of – was mm. a, a stockbroking clerk, which yes. is a bit different to what you ended up doing. But you said that it kind of allowed you – because obviously it was a bit of a boom time. You went overseas mm. to Europe twice, 18 and 21. And I loved how it's almost kind of an Australian rite of passage that you go backpacking, but you were always with a suitcase and a full face mm. of makeup, which I love. What was that kind of freedom in that time like of those of going to Europe for the first time? It, yes, well, I mean, you're right. That was a thing. It was a rite of passage. And it was especially because we were so interested in music and everything that it was that new romantic period. So we all wanted to go to England. England to go and see all the straight cats or oh, I'm just trying to think of that band all the new romantic Spandau Ballet you know all that yeah. sort of stuff so and it was and the fashion of course because it was all the pirate shirts and the teased hair and all that so yeah the first time I went I was 18 and you know went, we sort of went to a lot of clubs and sort of dressed like that the King's Road and all that sort of stuff and then I think I went back again three about three years later but that time was more around Europe and I was probably getting slightly more, oh, not sophisticated exactly, but just getting a more widespread viewpoint of, you know, rather than just that obligatory trip to London, it was sort of to go and look in Italy and and, and France and Greece and, and oh, did I go to Turkey on that trip? Yeah, I did, just to see that kind of culture and how people were dressing and things like that. So I've always been really interested in travel and I'm still love travel. And one thing that's already very apparent in what we've covered so far and also a lot more in your book as well is how your interest in music and film and art, how all those things kind of inform fashion and you're writing about fashion, which is obviously what you did, you are doing and have done for a lot of your career. Is that something that's really important to you, kind of those those cultural and, and social touch points rather than saying this is a nice dress? Absolutely, pretty. Because, and I've always said that even when I was at the editor of Vogue and I was hiring girls, I didn't really ever particularly want someone who just said I love fashion. Because for me, fashion comes from all of those things like music and arts and literature and fabrics and dance and all that sort of stuff, and the history of fashion, and then stringing that through to then looking at you know, contemporary fashion to make the connection rather than just walk in and say to someone, I love I love shopping at Balenciaga, I love the new Celine bag, I love the new that's not to me a particularly profound understanding of it and I wouldn't say to you that I'm fashion obsessed I'm I find fashion is reflective of a of a certain time and 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 then you look at the, the political reasons why 
you know, the suiting looked like it did in the 40s or the, the skirt lengths looked like they did in the 20s or what have you, so that they are grounded in social references. So, yes, and for me, also, we didn't have all this marketing and we didn't have all these brands. So a lot of the way we dressed when we were young, we threw together from op shops, and, and I know the kids still do that for sure, but that's all we had. We didn't have a top shop or a H&M or a Zara, you know, so we only really had disposal stores, op shops, and you know, sort of customised stuff because you, there's probably only two jeans brands you can get, you know. <laughs> so there's no way you could go, I, I want a pair of distressed skinny black jeans. Like, that wasn't a thing. You'd have to go out and get a pair of jeans, dye them black and distress them, you know. So there was a lot of making your own clothes, and which was really fun, and which you don't see so much now. People are much more label-obsessed, and they're label-obsessed very early. But I do find it really refreshing because I sometimes go with my sons to bleed markets because they like vintage, and you see the girls down there. You know, I, I love all that, watching the girls buy all that vintage and why, the reasons they're buying it. I find that much more interesting than someone lusting after a Saint Laurent handbag, you know? Yeah. So you were 23, I think, when you saw an mm-hmm. ad for a receptionist at Vogue. Was mm-hmm. that kind of somewhere that you would always wanted to work was that kind of the plan I never really had a plan in my head I knew I liked to write and I wanted to be a writer and I used to send like articles off on spec to sort of music magazines and things like that and I'd always liked you know fashion but in the context of what I've, I've just explained but so when I saw the ad for Vogue and I was w- working in a bookshop at the time and I, I saw the ad for the Vogue receptionist, I thought, oh, that would be quite a fascinating place to work. You know, that would really open a lot of doors into, you know, into areas of life that you may not necessarily get connected to. And also, oh, potentially there's somewhere I could write, you know, I could write there. So that kind of sparked my interest. I thought, well, I forget that I couldn't, I probably couldn't get a job as a as a journalist there, but I could certainly get a job as a receptionist, I would think. So that's why I went for it. You share a lot of your career story in The Vogue Factor. And I mean, I think it was, what, 14 years? You went from the front desk as your, as the line on the front cover says, front front desk to editor, which is just incredible. Uh, yeah, it was about that. Yeah, because I, I, I spent 10 years, because I got the job in 85. I was there for just on 10 years, then I, nine years, and I moved to Paris. And then came back to Vogue for a little while, went to Harper's Bazaar for two years, and then got the job in 99. So, yeah, about 14 years of experience before I actually got the editor-in-chief's job. Yeah, but I'd, I'd moved to Paris and been there for, you know, almost four to four and a half, five years and worked at Harper's Bazaar as well. So I had quite a lot of experience yeah. under my belt. It wasn't just, you know, I didn't just stay in the Sydney office for, for that long, no. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, even, so you started at the front desk and I think it was something like within six months mm. you were off the desk and into, mm-hmm. was it in promotions or? or a... Yeah, well, there was a woman that worked there called Nancy Pilcher and she was very glamorous and she was like the associate editor and I was on the reception desk and I used to ask her if I could help her to type up the notes or do anything and we sort of bonded and I said to her, if you ever need an assistant, I would love it if you would consider me. And then she got a job. She was called executive editor, that's right. And so she scammed it so that I could be part-time her assistant and the part-time promotions assistant. So I managed to get off the reception desk and do this kind of dual role. And then because we were doing both men and supplements, all sorts of things, I got training in everything because I had to write, I had to sometimes style, I had to, 
you know, think of ideas, run production, like do everything. So it was really, really great training. And then from there, I segued into beauty. The third product on your list is a product that you always repurchase, which is micellar water. Can you Mm. tell me a bit more about why that is one that you'll always have on you, with you even? (laughs) Well, well, that's such a great new invention, isn't it? It, Because I use it to take off my eye makeup, which I still wear eyeliner every day. But also I travel so much and it's just the handiest thing in the world because as long if you've got a bottle of micellar water, then you're good. You know, you cleanse eye makeup lipstick everything so that's just it's just become one of those things that it's just I've always got and I've always got a makeup travel bag packed because I do travel a lot whether it's you know internationally or interstate so I've always got that I've always got my cellar water there so you sort of sorted um so that's kind of a recent must-have and do you um, have a particular brand yeah. that you you prefer with your massage? I use the Gar- I use the Garnier one mm, yeah I don't know why probably because it was the first one I ever used but yeah, that's the one I use. Now, as you mentioned, you were kind of at one stage kind of doing a bit of everything. You were learning all the areas. You were kind of writing for fashion and for beauty. And I think mm-hmm. uh, part of that working in a magazine is obviously trips for for meals and also for shoots, which is definitely a perk of the job. But as you describe in your book, it's certainly not always a walk in the park. Things you're juggling, mm-hmm. you know, team politics, deadlines, weather, so many things outside of your control. Were mm-hmm. there any any of those that stand out? I know not necessarily for bad reasons, but one of the ones you write about quite a lot of detail, which sounded incredible, was the Elizabeth Arden Sun Moon Stars perfume yeah. launch where you casually meet, you know, Robert Redford in the hotel yeah. lobby and things oh, yeah. like that. I mean, that was a mad one. We, we, I was living in Paris at the time and Elizabeth Arden decided they were going to launch this fragrance called Sun, Moon and Stars and they flew all the beauty editors in from all around the world and... I was flown from Paris. Deborah Thomas from Clio, Clio, I guess, or maybe she was Mode at the time, was flown from Australia. Lee Tullock was flown, was living in Paris. And all the the American beauty editors came in on Concord, you know, and we all got helicoptered in. (laughs) First I took a plane to, I think it was probably to Carnival, then we got helicoptered into... No, I'm just it was Monte Carlo, for goodness sake. That's right. Into the Hotel de Paris, which is the most expensive, fabulous hotel. Um, we're there with these little, like, all expenses paid, these grand dinners. We had dinner at Karl Lagerfeld's villa. We were taken, you know, just everywhere. It was the most glamorous thing you could possibly imagine. And then halfway through the trip, Daryl Hannah was supposed to be arriving because she was the face of it. And then Jacqueline Onassis Kennedy died. And that was some Daryl Hannah was dating JFK Jr. Yep. So all of a sudden she couldn't come because his mother had, had passed away. So, okay, Daryl wasn't coming. And then the, it was just, you know, the most glamorous thing. I met Robert Redford, at, in, you know, accidentally in the hotel. We went to this dinner with Carl Lagerford. There was Helmut Newton, Michael Hutchins, the Prince of Monaco, Prince Albert, you know, the whole thing. So glamour, 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 and we all got back to our respective homes and everything, and then we were asking the PR, when do you want us to write the story? Oh, we got named, we got a certificate that a star had been named in the heavens just after us. Like, just, <laughs> the whole thing. And then we got back to, I got to Paris, and I'm, I'm, I'm emailing the PR going, well, well, when do you want the story? And when is it? And then after about six months, she came back and said, yeah, no, they're not actually going to launch. <laughs> so Incredible. We like, 
And unfortunately, I had a bottle of the fragrance, which was in the shape of a planet. And I, you know, since then have thrown it away somehow in a move. I wish I still had it because, you know, what a rare thing it would be now mm. of this. I can't even imagine what they spent on that launch, but it didn't happen. So, but the, that's in, that was the 90s. And the 80s and 90s were, there was like a lot, tons and tons of money being thrown at launches and parties and, and things like that in the beauty area, you know, it was super lavish those times. I mean, it might still be lavish, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, not quite to it's that extent. Market, not like that. <laughs> and as you mentioned, oh, it probably is. And as you mentioned, you were um, became beauty editor of Vogue in the early nineties. What do you mm. think? And kind of, we've said that there is a lot of glamour involved. But what do you think the biggest misconception about being a beauty editor is to people who are outside the industry? Well, I, I would think that a lot of people think that it's idiotic, you know, and it's like, oh, what are you talking about? Does it? You can use slap any old moisturiser on the skin, or you know, that it, that it's it's just idiotic. But it, it isn't. If you look in the history of some of the really great editors um, that have, you know, magazine editors that have emerged, a lot of them have come from the beauty area because beauty was combined a lot of different things it combined journalism so you had to make something you had to make something that that could be potentially ordinary like a mascara or a blush or whatever you you had to use your imagination to make it compelling and interesting but it was also based on commercial reasons why some launches were bigger than others and those ad dollars ran and supported the magazines so you had to keep the advertisers happy so it was a big juggle between making the advertiser happy and also not boring the consumer to death and i've and you had to, you know, pull on some ima- imagination in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I always found it quite a, a fulfilling and interesting job until I didn't, you know, until you've learnt it and then you're like, I'm good to go. I don't need to hear about the epidermis anymore, yeah. um, you know. But in those years that you didn't know, there was lots to learn about fragrance and, uh, you know, how you put together a, 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 an enduring fragrance or, you know, just there was lots to learn. I, I, I thought it was more... I found it more interesting than fashion. But then I think you get to a certain point where you're like, yeah, I'm good, I'm, I'm, it, it's ticked, you know. Um, and you kind but, of see the yeah. same same things being brought out, each claiming to be, you know, the holy grail ingredient or whatever. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you can you can see a real, you can spot something that, that really is a breakthrough product or, a, a, or a, you know, is really doing something really unusual but mostly it's just reinvented and repackaged. But and and you've got to have to keep a sceptical, you put a sceptical hat on when they're telling you about how much a topical something can it actually do. But there have been innovations in that area over the years, and and certainly if you look at the makeup from the seventies and you look at the makeup now, there have been a lot of innovations. So, but you've 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 just got to kind of cast a weary eye over it. <laughs> but I do find it interesting because I just. I like everything about it. I like the smells, the packaging. It just makes you feel good. I like the camaraderie that women have when they do it together. Mm. You know, I mean, I've got a daughter. My son's girlfriend is a makeup artist and she's been at MAC and Dior and now she's at Mecca. And we just bond over it and go shopping together and swap things with each other. It's really girly and nice, you know. It's kind of – it's got some symbolism around it, I think. (laughs) Feminine symbolism. Or you can reject it and hate it and that's fine too. Yeah, but it's unifying either way when you find yeah. people who feel the same yeah. way. And speaking yeah. of fragrance, the fourth product on your list is Estee Lauder 
youth due. Is that right? Yes, yes. And that's only from because, you know, what, what could I afford when I was young was just all the stuff you bought at the chemist, you know. But that was my kind of grown-up fragrance and I had a boyfriend who I was mad about and he loved that sort of really super spicy fragrance. So whenever I smell youth due, right, and it's very strong, I probably wouldn't wear it now. But whenever I see it, it reminds me of that sort of, you know, going from a girl into a woman really that kind of that those really spicy fragrances and then you know things like opium came out and there was a real trend around those even calyx by prescriptive is a little bit like that so it's those spicy fragrances that always remind me of being young i don't i don't tend to wear them so much now i'm i wear more rose-based things but that just reminds me about of sort of feeling glamorous and sophisticated rereading um the vogue factor before i was talking to you i loved kind of seeing how organically these kind of beauty products define those kind of moments in your life you mentioned Estee Lauder youth due with relationship and then kind of after having your your sons you know walking down the hospital with Chanel number five shower gel yeah to me that was really important with the chaos of having twins like to actually to be groomed and to pull yourself together and I was lucky enough I was in hospital I had children in Australia and the PRs kind of knew that I was home from Paris and Chanel sent me this whole big bag of Chanel number no. five shower gel and perfume and body lotion and all that sort of stuff. And so I sent it to the hospital. And, you know, you're feeling so kind of, you know, ragged after giving birth to twins and what have you. And then this big thing of Chanel arrived, which was really <laughs> fabulous. And I did make, even though it was chaos having twins, I always used to make time to make sure I had my nails done or what have you, just to keep some kind of control in my life, you know, which I think beauty does as well. When I say that it was meditative, I think it's meditative. Yeah, it's, it's, grooming's always been super important to me. Beauty did kind of change your life outside your career too because I think you mentioned obviously living in Paris for a few years and that's where you you met your your husband and you were there for a mm. fragrance launch I fragrance think. launch yeah and I mean you talk about that particular trip and it's I mean you can't make the details up you know you were there for a perfume launch an event with models then you go out clubbing with Sydney drag queens you're at the hottest French clubs <laughs> and then you end the night with Michael Hutchins and the man who becomes your husband. It's just yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yes, that was the launch of Feminite de Bois. Yeah, and it was that, which I still have got a big spot for that fragrance and that's super spicy as well. Yes, and then ended up in a nightclub called the Casbah with a whole bunch of Australian like drag queens who just look fabulous. And yeah, met my husband. So, you know, that's the thing with me, makeup and, and beauty products and fa- fragrance and everything. It all... It's glam. It's like glamorous. It, it's the world of smoky nightclubs in Paris, and you know burlesque calls and showgirls. And I, I just, I will always find that glamorous. I, I will, you know, always find that glamorous. Smell of the grease paint, as they say. But yeah, <laughs> a few years later, you you did move to Paris, as you said, and you said you had no savings, knew little French, and no papers. But yet, that first year was one of the best of your life. It's the kind of romantic decision that so many people dream about, kind of leaving your job, living that that dream in Paris. How do you look back on it now? I mean, is it something that you would do now, do you think? Well, you do it in a different way. I mean, I was 30, so you, you're up for it. You know, you've, you've got the energy. And I didn't I didn't move in with my husband then. I, I had my own apartment because I thought... I did do it with some sense of uh, rationale yeah. because I thought, you know, get your own apartment in case it doesn't work out. At least you, you've got... 
you know, your own thing going on. And I did have a retainer, so I was still working for Vogue, so I was being, I, I was able to connect with all the fashion and beauty houses and continue my career. So there was some sort of logic underneath it, and I ended up staying for almost five years. But I'm so glad I did it in retrospect because it, it takes you out of that big fish, small pond mentality. Kind of got to, you get thrown into, you know, a different culture where nobody you know nobody and nobody really cares about you and you've got to learn so I think I learned a lot in that five-year period I spent a lot of time in my own head as well I spent a lot of time alone that's great as well because I don't think I've ever had that since and I like being alone so yes and I feel really comfortable in Paris it's my of course now I've got you know French children children are half French I've got my in-laws are over there I feel really comfortable there so I'm so glad I did it. And it also got me closer to things like got to go to the couture and all of the shows because I was there. And that just really took my expertise in fashion to another level. The fifth product on your list is one that gives you that confidence boost or your signature look, which is mascara. Why mascara? Well, I probably wear less eyeliner than I, I used to wear. But as you get older, you tons of eyeliner is not probably the best look and um, but I still like to have my eyes accentuated so probably never leave the house without mascara on I use a lot of makeup but I use it very lightly so I will wear foundation but for a light foundation I wear blush I wear brow eyebrow powder uh, you know pencil I wear eyeliner but everything's lighter now the older you get I think you have to have a lighter touch but, you know, mascara I would always use. I did go and get some eyelash extensions recently. What did you um, think? Because I thought, oh, that, that's probably a good look at this point, but I just can't stand that lying there and having your eyes poked at. <laughs> I don't know. I think I've got a sneaking suspicion that maybe it makes your real eyelashes fall out, so I just quit doing it. <laughs> it's also a very addictive habit once, yeah, once you get I used just, to that length. Yeah, I, don't, I don't even know if it's hygienic. I'm just not sure about it. <laughs> so is there a particular mascara that you love? Are you kind of a... A budget one, or do you go the more high end mascaras? No, I like the high end ones. I like, um, I think Dior Show is really fantastic, and Lancome, because my mum used to use it, but they've always made great mascaras, Lancome. Chanel did too. Yeah, I try different ones every time, but I love Dior. Obviously, Vogue has been a huge part of your career, mm-hmm. but you also recently announced your new role as Features Director at Harper's Bazaar. So, firstly, mm-hmm. congratulations. Um, Thank you. And it's also, that's also kind of going back home for you too because you were also as you mentioned previously worked at Harper's Bazaar I think it was associate editor yeah 20 years ago yep so I suppose and and also reading your book I didn't realize that I think it was a few days after you were offered the Vogue editorship the opportunity Mm -hmm. also came to potentially be editor of Harper's Bazaar which seems like such a a sliding doors moment on reflection yes yeah well I was at Harper's Bazaar and they were offering me the editorship and then I was offered the job at Vogue and, you know, so to weigh them both up, you know, I, I felt I'd been at Vogue for so many years before that and felt very comfortable. So I made the decision to go across to Vogue and, you know, stayed there for 13 years. But, yeah, I just recently, you know, I was asked to go back to Harper's as features director. That's funny because I walked in, it's the same building, of course, so I'm just back in the same building 20 years later, <laughs> hopefully 20 years wiser, definitely. But just doing the feet yeah I mean in pretty much the same role actually so isn't it life's funny like that but I'm not doing the beauty portion of it now at Harper's Bazaar I'm I'm doing features but I I love it's my area of competency I would hope but I still really like I like fashion magazines and I like 
yeah, I just like that world, the world of it. And obviously, you never really left magazines if you're not even after you finished at Vogue, because I know you've been consulting and, and contributing. Mm-hmm. But is it exciting to kind of get back there full time as well? I think so, because yes, I didn't entirely leave magazines. I was doing some consulting, and then I, I did a digital magazine. I've been also consulting to another young girl who's got a fantastic independent magazine called Imprint. So I've been helping her. But I like. It made sense for me to go back to Harper's Bazaar when the editor asked me because, you know, I still have a lot of contacts and I'm really interested in the features area. I'm really interested in politics now. I'm very interested in female stories in all sorts of areas. Probably, I'm not disinterested in fashion. I'm certainly not disinterested in beauty, but I really like the features and travel area now of, now that I'm a bit older, I think. So it did make sense for me to go back and, and it's a team of really, you know, they're always great, the girls, and there's like young, and there's young guys too, mm-hmm. young teams, and it's probably, it's really nice to be working with younger people as well. I think it's a good mix to have different ages in, in, in businesses, you know, um, you yeah. can learn from each other. So, yeah, feel, it does feel right to me. And obviously the last few years globally and in Australia, we, it's been a described as a challenging time for magazines but I think again as you read your book and I've spoken to a few a few editors across this podcast and it seems to be every few years there is this period where magazines are going to end and there's these challenging times kind of happen every every few years so do you think we're just in an an exciting period of challenge or do you think I mean does it concern Um, you at all? That's a really big a big question. Yes. <laughs> I think it is. It's certainly challenging times for magazines and to make to get that mix, commercial mix, correct between magazines and websites. But also, just the balancing of content, so that because digital requires so much content, you see a lot of it dumbed down. You know that you think, gosh, did somebody actually have to write that? Like. You know, just yep. to fill. Do you know what I mean? Space, Sometimes yeah. it's like you know, look at Kendall Jenner's flyaway hairs. And you're like, oh, the poor <laughs> person had to write that headline. So, defining meaningful content that have good commercial sense. This is the big struggle for everybody, I think. But the consumer is still after information, so that's the good news. The so the, the challenging stuff is to be able to run a business commercially and make sure that you're producing meaningful, interesting content that will people will want to pay for. So. Is that exciting? Yes. Is Are there, like, really deep challenges to get to that spot? Yes. But I guess that's the game, and it always has been the game. So, and there are new things starting, and things are reinventing, and things are changing. So, as long as you, you stay optimistic, but it, what you really have to do is make sure that you still want to do a great job and deliver great content. That If you, if you just want to cut costs and do it the other way, I, I don't that's not interesting and that's not going to maintain. But if you still want to do a good job and you've got stuff you want to tell people, then I think that there is potential. I imagine it's not very easy when you've been in a role for 13 years as Uh editor of Vogue. Uh But if Uh you had to pick one particular career highlight of that time, I mean, the things that you did were amazing. I mean, particularly recently, obviously, with Karl Lagerfeld passing, you shared on Instagram the kind Uh of story of when you had him guest edit the magazine, mm-hmm. which was, yeah. was was such a coup, but what stands out for you? Well, I probably, I, I always tell the same story, but it, it is true. It's the Princess Mary, breaking that Princess Mary story, because I had been in Copenhagen on a trip and I looked up at the palace and said to my friend, Tim Blanks, there's a girl in there who's from Tasmania. She's going to marry the prince. I want that story. You know, it's a great story. And he was like, um, it was Tim Blanks, the fashion critic that I was talking to. And he went, oh, you know, good luck kind of thing. And then pretty much a year later, 
she had married him. I was in that palace with her doing a cover and an inside story. And I just, and, you know, she's showing me all the artworks and it was like such an incredible experience. And it was sort of the power, I felt the power of Vogue gave you the opportunity to, to create, just to come up with something in your head and make it happen. And that was kind of a real circle of wanting something, striving for it with all my team helping of course it wasn't just me but actually closing that loop and I remember her and I standing by the window looking down into the square and I thought isn't this funny I was down there and now I'm up here mm-hmm. and that kind of to me was probably yeah that was a bit of a hairs at the back of your neck moment. The sixth product on your list is you mentioned when it comes to skincare you do like the um the fine things the finer things mm. when it comes to skincare mm. So tell me a bit, you, you mentioned Creme de la Mer and La Prairie as some of your favourites, yeah. the skincare that yeah. you go to. Well, I mean, I've been lucky enough, obviously, to be given this stuff. Yeah. So, Paul, I mean, I know how, I remember I went up to buy some Creme de la Mer the other day, I went, how much? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let me preface it with I've been sport rotten and had lots of facials and everything. But because my mum instilled that in me with her French skincare, you know, I've just always loved expensive creams. I just... I just couldn't cope with a, a no-brand, no-smell moisturiser. You know, I just it's not a thing I want to use. So I've I love La Prairie. If if it's winter, I really love La Mer. Been using Sisley, which is just gorgeous. And I had a facial at the Sisley Institute in Paris, which was next level. So yeah, that is something that I really enjoy using. And it comes down to that ritual thing you were talking about earlier. That it's not just about the product; it's about the whole. The feeling it is kind of sometimes the packaging and, and everything else is part of it. Oh, absolutely. And just the smells and the... Even I was in Shanghai last week and I bought some at the airport because it had all this really beautiful Chinese packaging and then my son's girlfriend and I opened it up and we could smell the perfume coming off. I said, oh, it's probably <laughs> toxic. But I couldn't walk past without buying it because I just, I'm still obsessed with beauty products. Like I, I only had 10 minutes in the airport and I was still looking for beauty products in Shanghai. But, um, but yeah, I do like, I like, I like Estee Lauder too. I thought if I've always rated Estee Lauder skincare, Chanel, I mean, I love it all. You have written five books, a mix of fiction and non-fiction, including the history of Australian Vogue, you've got Tongue in Cheek, which is your, your novel, and then obviously the Vogue Factor, which we've mm-hmm. spoken about before. And the Vogue Factor opens with the first chapter is your your kind of last day at Vogue, leaving Vogue. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious because I feel like it comes up a bit, is that what do you do after the dream job, if it is the dream job? And you talk particularly about mm-hmm. Vogue being such an iconic brand and so strong and, you know, your identity can become kind of tied to your job mm-hmm. in so many industries. Mm-hmm. How, how mm-hmm. did you cope with that after was that something that you kind of had to grapple with uh yes I think so and you know I think that we um I was talking about it with someone this morning about job security at the moment we live in eggshell times is what somebody said this morning and I thought that's really true like there's a lot of retrenchments there's a lot of movement in companies and everything so it can happen to a lot of people and I've seen it happen to a lot of people and it is something particularly if worked somewhere for a long time and you think you're good at it you think you're competent at it and all of a sudden it disappears, that is something that you have to come to terms with. And I think the – so I think it, it's, it's, it would be the rare person who says to you, oh, it didn't bother me in the slightest. But I, I was lucky enough to be given the book deal 
literally the next day. And so I had something to go to. And through the process in that three years of writing those three books, I got to relearn who I was, you know, because I'd sort of forgotten. I was sort of a figurehead of something. And when and I was sort of out very quickly, I was like, oh, what am I good at? I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if I'm good at anything because I had a team and staff and all that. But then I said, no, actually, I think I'm okay at writing. And then that, so that just made me rediscover who I was and what kind of floated my boat. And interestingly, and I just gave my time, myself time to heal in a way. I didn't go and get another big job. I just didn't feel like, I just didn't want to. And so it, that's, so it's interesting now. It's six years and I'm going back to Harper's Bazaar and I'm really just doing what I want to do, which is writing. You know, and so but I think in any, if anything comes out of the blue, anybody like that, you've got to give yourself time to heal without beating yourself up about it and just decide what makes you happy. And you, you don't have to prove anything to anybody except yourself. So I think that's probably what the lesson I told myself. And it also gave you the opportunity because you look at what you did after that and you obviously you've, you've written several yeah. books you were consulting in print as you mentioned and Porter V as well which was can you tell me a bit more about Porter V yeah that was a project I did just I'm, I'm not doing it now I've left it left it now but it was a startup business of a online lingerie company and I um, went into it with a, a young woman that I used to work with at Vogue and we created a digital magazine and I, I learned a lot in that process too it was a startup so we learned how to you know, raise capital. I learned a lot about setting up a digital retail business. I learned how to do a digital magazine, which I have to say is 20 times easier than doing a print <laughs> one because you can just change everything. You know, so again, it was like learning new skills, which, um, and, you know, creating this sort of super luxurious niche lingerie brand because I also, I like makeup and I also love lingerie. So that was a great, a great experiment. So I've just done lots of different things. And again, when you look at the, way people work now you talk about doing a portfolio of things and having a suite of suite of jobs rather than relying on one big gig for me in my age now is where I'm comfortable so yeah so that's what I've been doing over that six years so having had such a huge long corporate life I wasn't so invested in going back into a corporate life and of course the longer you're out and the more you realize that, that there's so much out there and so many exciting opportunities that it's you just got to, you know, it's just great to explore everything. And speaking of career, your, your other book that we haven't mentioned, I think it's your most recent, was Impressive, How to Have a Stylish Career, which is another mm. another one I regularly leaf through. And oh, I don't know, it's good. I've read you say when it comes to kind of a party or a function, you are the first to arrive and the last to leave. And that some of your friends have kind of said that while they're off, like grabbing a drink, you'll be chatting to someone and you'll get an exclusive or you're, you're very good at, at working the room and networking. And it sounds like it's, is it something that you do genuinely enjoy and that confidence comes to you or is it yes, take it to make it as well? question, Brittany. I think, I think I do like networking. Yeah, I do. There's difference between networking and sort of idle chit chat. So, like, to go to a room, work out who mm, – I'm, I'm trying to say this. I don't want this to sound like, you know, work the room to your advantage. I don't yeah. mean it like that. But I just mean, like, you can always find a story in, with someone. You know, there is always, always something to discover. And I've always done better work away from my desk than at my desk, I think, you know. So I do like to meet people and make connections because connections are super important going forward and, and if you connect – and I don't mean that sort of relentless, ambitious sort of social climbing. I don't mean that at all. But I mean by make, by finding genuine people and finding out what they're good at, that those connections hold you in 
really great stead later on in your career and you'll find that you can fall back on those people and those connections will maintain. So I am pretty good at that and I've, I've always enjoyed it. Uh, even as even still now, mind, I still do it a lot, but then I'll recover on the weekend. <laughs> you know, like I don't do much on the weekends, but I will go out, sort of meet new people because I find a lot of people, everyone's got a story. Exactly. And that, like you said, it's not necessarily always career focused. It's just if you're in a room with people that you don't really know, it's about yeah, yeah. having that confidence to have a, com- a conversation that could end up being a friend or, or yes, whatever. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I'm not shy. I'm not a shy person, <laughs> you know, so I am. I love conversation and I love debate. And well, I'm a journalist, so, you you know, you, you I'm asking questions. I want to know what you think. I want to know why you think that. I, yeah, that's well, that's one of the great joys of life, I think. But yeah, idle chit-chat, not so much. But I, I've made some great connections with younger women over the past few years because I've been doing a lot of mentoring and you know I was thinking the other day oh I'm going to have a lunch and invite them all to meet each other you know because they're all in their 30s and they're all incredible so I love that. We're getting to the final two products on your list Mm -hmm. the seventh Mm -hmm. product is one of your go-to products which is the Revlon brow pencil why do you love this one in particular? Well, because I have used it, my one of my best friends was the marketing manager of Revlon for years. So I'm very, I was always, you know, I always had Revlon product, but I've always been so fond of it. But I've invested in all those expensive ones like Tom Ford and blah, 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 all those ones. And they snap. <laughs> They're like really expensive. And whereas the Revlon ones are not, they don't... They're just, they're just probably, I think they're more effective. So that's something I'll probably always have in my makeup bag. But once you've something, you've used something and it's not, value's not there, then, you know, you're better off to use the tried and true cheaper one. I wanted to really briefly talk to you about ageism in magazines because one of the stories mm-hmm. that you talk about in The Vogue Factor is featuring Lauren Hutton on one of the covers and mm-hmm. kind of this disconnect between what people and maybe the media say you know we need to see more diversity or more older women on covers and then not seeing that translate in figures mm-hmm. obviously that was a few years ago and things are changing mm-hmm. and I think even uh, British Vogue's latest cover which I think is in co- collaboration with L'Oreal which is an interesting conversation in itself but mm-hmm. is all about age being a non-issue do you think we are seeing progress there and I mean particularly in beauty, there's a, been a demographic of women who have just been ignored in, in marketing for so long. Do you think there is change that you're seeing? Uh, yes and no. I think a lot of it is, is lip service and and some and some of it is tokenistic. It, it, it doesn't necessarily translate to what's being reflected in hiring in um, of older exec, female executives and seeing them on television and things like that. I think everything has to be evaluated piece by piece. You know, there's a lot, there's just a lot of lip service around everything, but is the, is the follow through there, you know? So if that's the case, why is Kendall Jenner the face of everything? The thing that they go to for everyone, you know, like, so I, I, I'm really hesitant to say things have changed to people. It's all right. Everything's okay. Because I don't know if that's entirely true. I don't think we see it reflected in corporate Australia. I don't think that we see it reflected enough in on our, in our, on our screens. And, you know, so yes and no, I think we've made some inroads into diversity and ageism, but I'd be very hesitant to say, yeah, it's, it's all good. We shouldn't panic. You know, let's not panic. It's all fixed. No. Absolutely not. So, and I think also women have to, 
we're only just getting used to having things, having some choice. Like, you know, if I, I walk into a cosmetic store and I see an old woman, like I can't remember the brand. There's a brand of Mecca. Linda Roden, is that it? Yes. And, yeah. and you go, oh, look, someone with grey hair and red lips. We haven't really seen that before. It's going to take a while till we actually re- see it as the norm. Yeah, at the moment, it's still a bit of an anomaly. Certainly, the direction we're heading in is a smarter direction. And the fact that uh, we, we as consumers have more choice now and we can just hop online and we can find that niche product that we want. So they're going to have to listen to us. But I still don't see it reflected in where it's really important, whereas it's in employment and our sort of visual clues and politicians and what have you. So I think we've got tons, a really long way to go. We're talking about the age factor. And speaking of trends moving away from beauty, I feel like particularly in the last year or so, there has been, and this is tapping into another one of your interests, I think, a rise in astrology and tarot card reading and things like Mm -hmm. that, which I don't know whether is a reflection of the lack of control we're all feeling about politics and and everything else Mm -hmm. that's going on. But Mm -hmm. um, is that something I've I've read that you do tarot cards or you've also had a few... um, Oh, just as fun, but I mean, you can, I'll go to a clip. I love clairvoyancy and, yeah. and tarot and anything spooky and ghosts and supernatural. And um, I've always, I was always, I've always loved that. And it's interesting you should say that because I think we have a lot of. I was having a conversation with someone recently about the lack of trust we have now as a society. We don't trust politicians. Why should we? We look, you know, banks, um, <laughs> religion. What's what we've seen recently with um, the Catholic Church. Who do we trust? The internet, Facebook, you know, it is. So I think within that lack of trust, this general lack of trust in what society would have normally invested in, I think there may be this kind of this kind of idea of plugging into things that are, are more supernatural, so to speak. But I, I, you know, it's not. I've always thought I don't have all the answers. This is probably an answer to your question. So. You know, maybe clairvoyants do. Who knows? I've, I've always got an open mind, I would like to think. Have any of those instances where you've gone to a clairvoyant or psychic oh, yes. been oh, accurate? Yes. Oh, oh, absolutely, yes. And so I don't think any one clairvoyant has been 100% accurate, but out of all the clairvoyants I've seen, there's been some accuracy within it. I mean, some people are just more perceptive than others, just in a general sense. So it makes to me it makes sense that someone should be, there must be people who are more psychically evolved than you are not every human is the same so that makes sense to me and a final fun fact that i didn't realize that i found out in the vogue factor was if people maybe pause a certain film called zoolander at the right point they might see a blur of you is that true i mean i don't know that you can actually see me but i was two rows back from ben stiller when he you know, thinks he's won the award and gets up to, and he hasn't. It was actually Hansel that wins because we were at the VH1 Awards and then they got up on stage and said, we're actually filming this movie because we landed tonight. So this is, you know, just clap and look shocked when the wrong person walks up. So they did it twice. They repeated it. So, yeah, I'm in the Zoolander film, which, you know, which is awesome because Zoolander's a classic, probably the best fashion film ever made. <laughs> it's really hard to make a fashion film that does, is, is just dopey and, you know, not on it, but I think Zoolander was close. So, yeah, forget the devil wears Prada. Zoolander is the insight you need. <laughs> oh, I think Zoolander's much more insightful, but I think Meryl did a magnificent job with it, but I think Zoolander was more close to the truth. <laughs> The final product on your list takes us back to to your your early days, which was the first product that you remember buying yourself with your own pocket money, which mm. is 
the Yardley Potter Gloss. Can you tell me yes. a bit more about that? Yes. I was reminded of it. For some reason, I came across it on the internet the other day and all the old ads. Gloss was the big thing when I was like a young, you know, 13 or whatever. And they had, there were these Yardley. Yardley was a big makeup brand. And they had this thing called Potter Gloss. And it, it was really sticky, you know, really, really sticky and kind of really smelly. And, but, and yeah, every girl, we like, we were obsessed with them, you know, you collected them. And I think Potter Gloss was bronze i remember it was this bronzy pink color but it's my first grown-up lip gloss you know your hair your hair would get stuck in it that was very <laughs> it was they were just god they should bring them back that was so great <laughs> <laughs> we talk about it a lot more now with the power of women supporting each other and, and mentoring and things i mean it's, it's always it's always been happening but we talk about it mm-hmm. a lot more there's a lot more conversations happening mm-hmm. and it seems reading about your career it seems that you've had a number of women throughout your career who have supported and mentored you and you've just been surrounded by by strong women and undoubtedly you've been that strong woman for many people as well. Is that something that you feel like has been important to your, your personal and professional success, that support and friendship? Yes, definitely. I, I mean, and I think subconsciously or unconsciously when I went into magazines, I gravitated towards women who I thought, who I admired and I thought I wanted to learn from and be like. And so I had some really great mentors at Vogue. And then I guess as you as you progress throughout your career, you know, you, you're kind of getting higher up in the food chain in your organisation. So I sort of looked outside of Vogue to other managing directors of luxury companies what, or what have you that you know, I have felt that had insights that I didn't have. So I've always looked for people to teach me and but but it not not in, in an organic way really, not in a in a, a more studied sense. You know, I never formally asked anybody. It was more that I would sort of reach out. I enjoyed spending time with them and that was probably because I was learning from them. And then I just noticed recently that I just had a lot of young women that would come to me to ask things and then you go past mentoring, you end up just being friends, which is really lovely. So, you know, I, I I don't do, I've never done it in that formal sense of, you know, joining networking groups or see what's the chief executive women are or anything. I've never done it that way. I've always just gravitated towards people that I think are talented and kind and fun and generally you're learning something, you know. Um, So they don't have to be higher than you. They can be on the same level. They can be more junior and what the hierarchy looks like but it's just about whether they've got a way of being in the world that you you want to learn from you know and I think I prefer it like that than the more formal formalized sense of it and I've actually started teaching too now at FBI Fashion College and that's that's really interesting too to get the feedback from those young students and to be able to pass on what you know about stuff like that I find that whole circular thing is women have always been good at that yeah I think. And I mean, you, you even mentioned, you mentioned obviously Deborah Thomas, like a lot of the women mm. who are, who are your friends are editors of other magazines that mm-hmm. from the outside you might think, oh, it's all, it's all competition, but no, it is possible. You know, it's not all like. No, that's what, yeah, it's something that Deborah and I always say to each other, there's room for everybody. There's room for all of us. It's not like, I know it may be long, you know, a few decades ago, there was only one job and so a woman might cling to it a little bit longer or you know as we said pull the trapdoor up behind her but I don't think that's the case now and there's room for all of us so I think people to be generous with sharing your your knowledge and your experience will only bring good things you know you don't have to hang, hang on to these hold them close to your chest you know I think I think it's important to be generous and to to give people the opportunity to 
to excel and to help and to, to share your contacts, you know. So I, I definitely think as, as it expands, we're going to see more of that because women are getting more senior roles. You mentioned before, we've talked about kind of the products that have defined moments in your life, but comes to your current makeup collection, you... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm always curious whether you have like tried and trusted favorites or but you actually enjoy experimenting with new products. Oh yeah, I practically buy something every day. I have a new favorite is this powder called Blur Blur powder I think it's called it's by Sizzlay and it's this really pale kind of bronzer powder bronzer thing that you just dust lightly over your face and it blurs it must have lots of light pigments in it and it just softens because you know i'm in my 50s it just softens your whole complexion it's heaven interesting we've talked about the eight products that have a special memory or meaning for you and now is if you found it hard to narrow it down to eight this is Mm. the the even harder question which is if you could take just one of those products Mm. with you to beauty island to keep you company i'll obviously give you Lots of sunscreen, so you won't be some sunburnt on Beauty Island. But, um, yeah, because which, that's super important. You want to be yes. sunburnt. <laughs> which, um, which product oh, would you choose? One product, and it doesn't have to be practical. It's just the one that you want to have with you while you're while you're there. Only one. <laughs> oh, I guess mascara. Mind you, it's going to run, isn't it? And you won't have mm. your micellar water to take it off at the end of the day. No, I won't. Oh, what am I going to? You're not going to need any because you're going to get. You're on a desert island, so you're going to get naturally flushed. You never got. You're not going. I guess lipstick, maybe. Then you're going to look pulled together because it's going to be a bit flushed. Yeah, lipstick. And what what lipstick would this be? Mm, I'd just choose a nice sort of red, Bobby Brown, muted. You know. Yeah, because maybe because if you think of everything's pared back, you've got nothing on your eyes. You got to have something. You got to have. You've got to feature something, haven't you? <laughs> yep. I think a red lip, why not do it? A red lip on the desert island, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Kirsty, thank you so much for talking to me today. It has been so lovely. You're Um, welcome, Brittany. (laughs) And I really appreciate your time, as I said. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beauty Island. If you like the sound of any products Kirsty mentioned or you'd like to know more about her or perhaps read some of the books she's written, I pop links in the details of this episode for you. And if you fancy chatting more beauty, you can find me on Instagram at Beauty Island Podcast or send me an email, beautyislandpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much. And until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>